Sheila Conway was born and reared in the 1950s in the village of Lime Hill in East Galway. She now lives in Canada, where she's a writer who is actively involved in the women's movement. But Lime Hill will always be a part of her. That one day I will return to my homeland and go far up into the callows of my childhood. Callows of my childhood. This is a record of one such return to the callows of Sheila Conway's childhood, a return to Lime Hill. to get the water from in the 1950s. Of course, with the new houses now, it's all tap water. Uh, but what I keep thinking about this well uh, is um, what comes back to me over the years is the way in which uh, we used to clean it out from time to time and how in many ways the well is very much like our consciousness or our memories. Um, how sometimes it is important uh, to bring up that moss from the well, to bring up uh, those issues sometimes that need to be articulated. And how when those, um, those things that need to be said, that need to be spoken, are spoken, uh, how they can cloud all of the water for a time, and then the water will finally settle down, but you have a clean well when the moss is removed and when the springs can flow freely. So I always think of that well when it's important to tell the stories, to tell, to articulate um, the good things as well as the bad things. It's very important. the old house that I was reared in and uh, I grew up in this house and many a story was told around the fireside in this house you know, we're walking through the haggard now this used to be called the haggard we're walking through all the nettles and dock leaves and all sorts of clover leading up to the door and uh, if the door is old now you can see it's uh, yeah I don't think you can go in here now no it's um, you see the whitewash on the walls I remember that now particular uh, around stations and so on when the priest would come down uh, once every five years I think it was and you had to do the, you had to whitewash all the walls.
I was about six or seven at the time. And uh, the priest came in and all the neighbors, of course, had gathered, which is ha what uh, used to happen in those days um, for, the, uh, for the mass in the morning and the breakfast. And sure, we had to go to an awful lot of trouble now to make the place grand, you see, for all the neighbours coming in. Again, because of that pride, uh, you do up the place, whitewash it and put red polish on the old clay floor and paint everything. Now, you see here the paint on that door. Look at it. Mm. Uh, one of the things was to put those little twirls in, in the paint, it's sort of an indentation, you know, to just make it a bit fancy. That was for the priest and the station. <laughs> and of course that particular morning the, the conversation would be very stilted you know um, as people w would be at the breakfast because the pre nobody could really talk with the priest he was well he was above everyone else that kind of thing and um, and suddenly there was a silence a very um, uncomfortable silence and uh, the priest asked my father for the cess that he owed him he said that um, he had owed him for several months, and that was true, he had, but of course there was no money uh, at the time. And um, with the station coming up, they had spent everything on the red polish and the, and the paint and the whitewash there. And now you see the ivy climbing over it. Um, but uh, there was a dead silence at that point, and my father said, I don't have it. And um, at that point, the damage had been done because that's all the priest wanted um, was for my father to be embarrassed in front of all the neighbours, to have to admit uh, in front of the neighbours that he didn't have the cess. Uh, was a terrible embarrassment. It was a terrible um, blow to one's pride. Well, my father was so um, upset by what he had done, by what the priest had done. The next morning, uh, he came out and he... Uh, he said to him that he would never stand inside this church again, that the church really was there as a business. It was strictly a business. It wasn't there for spiritual reasons at all, at least the kind of church that he had experienced in our small community where the priest was, uh, was really quite tyrannical. But it's like that notion now of the well that I just talked about. My father had to pull the moss out of the well uh, in order for this question to be looked at, the way in which, well, the oppression, really, that we experienced. And you can hear the rustling of the wind in the trees as we're talking. Uh, it's very, uh, it's almost like a sort of a, a music that goes with the vision. You can hear the sounds of the wind rustling in the trees and you can see there now um, just on the slope of the hill uh, where the ruins were of the houses of the people who had to go during the famine and who knows what happened to them coffin ships across the ocean there ah yes now we're turning around the bend here small bend in this little boring and in the distance you can see the great house that I referred to earlier and there it is tall imposing 
grey buildings, small windows. I always used to think that those small windows were peering out at you in a most supercilious manner. <laughs> As a small child, they certainly had that supercilious look to them. Here we are now at this wall, this old, uh, those walls that surrounded those great houses, you know, covered with ivy. What is it about this ivy? <laughs> I ivy League universities. Ivy covers the universities as well. This notion of privilege and knowledge and um, opportunities and so on. And there we are, lots of windows. One of the windows has bars on it there. I wonder why they put those bars. They used to have a glass house as well, where they grew tomatoes. And there we have the rhododendron bushes over there. Great houses loved rhododendrons. It was here that your father came, had to go to the back door to, to see about the water. That's right, indeed, it was here and he was told by um, uh, by the, this uh, this woman who had to be called less le let's call her um, Penelope maybe Miss Penelope said to him um, do you mean Master Alf Conway and he said no I mean Alf she slammed the door into his face and almost um, injured his uh, his hand as a matter of fact his hand almost caught in the jam of the door that house there taught me more about class than than any class analysis i ever went through in universities and i've been through four universities now mark certainly could never have captured it standing here as we are now in his academic way it's very powerful just seeing it as it's dilapidated people in Canada say that um, uh, the uh, trees whisper um, they whisper these stories and now if I hear the whispering of those trees as we walk up here past this great house and up by the hill where the family was given where their land was taken by these people for the for their passage on a coffin ship I hear those voices, I hear those, um, I hear the spirit of those uh, ancestors, those people who had something very important to say um, about their lives. Uh, I was talking with one of the, uh, my latest book launch um, in Toronto 
last uh, October. There were several hundred people that turned up uh, to the launch and uh, there was only one person from around home, a um, fellow from Nukash up there, um, Larry Sheehan, that's his name. And he said that um, uh, there's not a day that he doesn't think of home. There's the cows now out there. Yeah. That there's not a day that he doesn't think of home. Down the boring here now, we're just coming to uh, Achilleen. And of course, in uh, in our uh, tradition, uh, Achilleen is a place where uh, people were buried in unconsecrated ground. Here we have the stile mm. leading up to it. This is a wild place now out here. Mm. You can't see anything for a long way, except just the trees and the landscape. Uh, here's the gate now to it. Here we have thistles growing there. There's no um, wall that um, separates it from the rest of the field. Um, but I, uh, I see it um, very much as uh, that notion of exclusion, you know, and that assumption that um, uh, those babies somehow didn't go to heaven and uh, people who committed suicide didn't ever see heaven. I think there's a great sadness to that, you know, that was part two of, uh, of, um, of our church. And look at those little stones there. They don't even say the names. There's no name of uh, those who were buried there. And yet surely they had a consciousness, a spirit too. Now here, uh, just to the right of us, are the ruins of an old house, an old thatched cottage. A woman here, um, Bridget Lennon was her name, and she had a nephew, Tommy Robinson. And Tommy came from, uh, Tommy used to live here. He was a real character again. He'd come down to the, our house, oh, at least two or three nights a week and uh, he'd sing all the old songs and he was a great conversationist he'd chat away countryman he'd be considered now a peasant but actually um the point i'm making is that it was here right here that irish culture was created right here when you look at james joyce or any of the rest of it um, much of the culture was appropriated taken out by middle-class people who never really experienced it. There's a whole question now in Canada about appropriation of voice, the way in which white writers will go into um, native communities and will write about native people. 
um, as though they understand native culture and then go out and publish their books, novels and so on and uh, get the credit for it. And native people are coming along and saying, this is no longer acceptable, it's stealing. It's stealing our culture. And uh, I've often thought that about, um, uh, about Irish culture. I see many of the people around here now um, who were the creators of culture uh, never had the opportunities to, uh, to uh, have their work published, to have their stories told in public. But other people would come in and would uh, appropriate, if you will, or, or take out the culture and uh, convert it into an acceptable forum and put it onto the theatres in Dublin and places like that, where country people would never go. I have recurring dreams of this road and I just, in my dreams, I am walking down this road and I, I know every hedgerow, every bush, every piece of honeysuckle is there. The tuft of, uh, of uh, grass in the middle of the road. It's extraordinary really how bits of landscape will come back into my dreams and uh, will sort of just settle there for no apparent reason. It will just settle there and then it'll It'll come out into my dreams. I suppose, in a way, uh, it's a longing for the peace of this place. It's a longing for the silence. Uh, it's a longing for the uh, wind rustling through the trees. Um, part of who I am, you know, can't leave this place. Uh, somehow, um, although you leave and go away, there's part of you that is always here, that never that never can leave, and that emerges in the dream, in the, um, in the vision, in the symbolism, that sort of thing. Life on a farm of 40 acres in the bogs of Ireland was a series of calamities, one after another from fair to fair, season to season, because of our poverty. Poverty was the flies and the fly strip that hung in the kitchen in summer. It was Maggie stooped over the hearth, scooping up pancake mixture with her knotted arthritic fingers and slurping it into her mouth before the pancakes were even cooked. It was the creamery butter on the table, a couple of cats eating it with their backsides in a sugar bowl. It was the cobwebs that hung from the sooty oak beams over the kitchens. It was the drenchings you got on drizzly days when you had leaking wellingtons and no raincoat and you sat by the fire with the steam rising up the chimney. Most of all, it was the pervasive feeling of powerlessness to change anything that threw a heavy pall over your vision until you cursed your very existence. I remember we're in these villages now here um, when I was growing up in the 50s. Um, we were very much self-sufficient, you know. And although we lived in poverty, I'm beginning to question now, was that really poverty? And what does poverty mean? 
What is the real meaning of poverty? I have a very good friend who is a Cree Indian. And one day she said to me, well, what do you mean by poverty? And I described the conditions, you know. We had to go to the well for water. Um, we had uh, damp walls. Um, we didn't have toilets. Um, and we had, uh, we often, um, we, we, you know, we didn't have fancy stuff like they have in towns. And uh, she told me that uh, they lived uh, in uh, a tent, you know, a wigwam, the traditional Indian way. And uh, what she was saying is what uh, many Native people are now saying, that we have to go back to um, that other way of life that used to be, because we're destroying the environment. Um, we're destroying the earth. Now you see, is, it, is this progress, is this civilization? That's the question the native people are putting out. They're saying, okay, so is, is this not poverty? What we're living in now in these big cities, is that not poverty? Where people are killing each other, destroying each other, mugging each other. Um, and, and is that not real poverty? as opposed to living in a tent where you're not bothering anybody, or living in a small little village where you're not bothering anybody, or going to the well, which is not destroying anything, you know? Well, those are questions I think that um, Ireland is going to have to face very soon. We're standing here now in this boreen and uh, through the gate, if you can look up there, and here we have a piece of um, honeysuckle sticking out, and through that gate now, cross over the fields there, you'll see the church of Clonlee. That little church that I went to brings back all those memories of, you know, the, uh, the social control really, the way in which our community was, uh, was so controlled by uh, by the uh, by, the local priest. Well, way much all of our communities were controlled by the local priest. Um, I now see. I mean that that God was a terribly destructive God, a God that um, you know was very definitely male, and, and and a kind of a boss God. You know, in the old in the old day sense, you know, the man was the boss. Where's the boss when you came into the house? And of course, when you came into the church, the, me the, the boss was a male god who sat in a, a great white cloud, I think, with a great white long nighty and a great big long beard, you know. And he was a vicious character, out to just uh, get you in every possible way. To this day, I'm, I'm still struggling with, with the notion of that vicious, nasty god that was portrayed by, by my church, you know the church that I had to leave in order to find God, incidentally. Just before First Confession and First Communion, Father O dropped in all the time to ask us catechism questions about confession and the Eucharist as well as the Mass. I spent hours at home on the hob every evening trying to learn the answers to the questions. The big words never made any sense. 
but that didn't matter. All that mattered was that I should be able to stand to attention and reel off the answer perfectly. There were any number of questions. What is confession? What is a sin? What is a venial sin? What is a mortal sin? What is penance? What is the Eucharist? What is hell? I used the catechism so much that the pages were getting curled up at the corners. Misfits called them dog's ears, and there were butter stains and blackberry jam stains all over the pages. Was it a sin to have blackberry jam stains in your catechism? I was sure it was, because God the Father wanted perfection. That was a sin I would have to make a note of for confession. I kept the catechism open as I walked to school, repeating the answers over and over again in case Father O asked. It would be a terrible disgrace not to know the catechism in front of Father O. And now I've rediscovered that God. And I have to thank the native people of Canada, the Indian people, for um, enabling me to find that God and to feel um, and, and to feel that I was right in the first place in finding God up in the callows and the bogs. Um, that that's really where God is. I now try to see God as the great spirit, the universal great spirit that comes through us, through all of these things. And also in, in people, uh, the great spirit too, was present very much so uh, as we sat around the firesides back then. Um, with the people telling the stories and in the dances and in the music. That too was the great spirit. And the little school beside it? Oh, and the little school beside it indeed. Um, well, again, I'm afraid um, the way our education system was, was um, it was very brutal in many ways. You know, the, um, the teachers, I think, having been abused themselves as, as uh, pupils, um, then perpetuated that abuse on, on their pupils. And so the cycle of abuse went on. But I think we, um, we learned mostly through fear, really. But um, I must say uh, that one of the things that I did learn there in that little school was a love of poetry. And I remember um, now just up by that church there, uh, there's a house. And from that house came a young man, um, same age as myself then, uh, PJ was his name, PJ Madden, died at the age of 15. He got a tumour on the brain. And I remember PJ was a most extraordinary thing. He was a lovely looking boy, beautiful blonde curls. And he, whenever we were asked to recite a poem, PJ always chose Porrick Pierce's Ben Slave Equino Amic. Do you remember that poem? And for some reason or another, that was his poem. And uh, the poem was Egwal and Tleva Gumtranona, the Laur and Ainly Lumga Bronach, the Laur and Nesk Bindis and Krutak Glorak, Egfosh Nishdam Greg Mustorak. And the poem is about this woman um, who is crossing the mountains and uh, her son is sick. She's out herding and her son is sick. And um, she says, 
the lower on Ainley Lumgabronach. She's saying that they, the birds spoke to me in a very sad way. Telling me that my store, that my, my son, my love, um, had died. Most extraordinary um, how she felt the spirit of the, the birds speaking to her, the voices of the birds. So she runs home and she says, the, she goes into the house and she says, The glamy artist, the glowing of coolish, the glamy reach is fragrant and worse. The folk me the veil is a year not a vore. And I, I can't remember the last line. Something like, Ochis vore de lava sing gilin urchnach. And then the last verse is, Brown er on moss me fager a heno. Lagging she o'er as crean lekela. So walking one le she mocheso. The Colin Creeve, the Jane of Crayfoig. And what she's saying there is the sadness of death, it's hard to heal it. Lagging Sheur, it knocks down young as well as old. And then she says, My sadness is that my, uh, the bones of my son um, are gone in this Gilin uh, Uignach, and it's quiet lonesome graveyard and now just last week I was up in Lichine graveyard and I saw PJ's grave and I I just went back to that sad sad poem and I realized well I realized long ago that it was a premonition uh, uh, on PJ's part he used to recite that poem somehow of his own death and there was just this sadness to his voice when he said when he recited that poem it was almost as though now, when I think about that poem, it was almost as though I felt the same thing as that Ben Slava when she said the Laur on Ainley Lumgobronach. His voice spoke with a sadness as he recited that poem. And I always remember PJ and how how he had that that just it was just a profound sadness, a melancholy to his voice, a premonition of his, of his death. Here we are coming down the village um, and we have a road here this little boring splits into two one goes to the village of Lime Hill where there are about two houses three houses and one goes down Ranamechan so we'll go down Ranamechan now Raftree the blind poet used to come through here and of course every time I mention Raftree um, the male uh, poet I have to mention Mary Coy, because Mary Coy to me was a Shanachie, um who was just as powerful as Raftree. Um, Mary Coy also came through the village of Lime Hill and, uh, and Ronamechan, and uh, Mary Coy too brought her poetry and, um, and her storytelling with her. So we'll have to remember her now as we're walking down this boring here and how she'd come along with two old boots. <laughs> and she had an old hat 
that'd be pulled down over the head and um, about three or four skirts on her and about three or four sweaters or jumpers as they call them here and um, she'd be wandering along and telling all the stories that uh, she had heard all the way from uh, from Kilnadima all the way to Tina. I think I know who this is now. We're passing a house here, one of the neighbours. So I'll have to go and say hello to him. Hello. He's not gone. Not too shy, is he? Hello. Is that Owen, isn't it? No. No? Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> Who am I talking to here now? Sheila Conway. <laughs> how are you? Tommy Hickey. Oh, you're Tommy Hickey. Oh, how are you doing? <laughs> not so bad. Good, good, good. Who's the husband? Oh, not at all. <laughs> no. I should no. be so lucky. No, no, this is this is a man from Radio Air. Very good, big He's yeah. He's doing an interview with me here. Right. You're <laughs> grand to meet you now, too. Lord, Tommy, I haven't seen you in years now. No, no. I wouldn't know you with the glasses now. No, no. <laughs> yeah, you're taping me in there. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Oh, my. Well, I was just uh, telling him here about um, old Jack and Maggie. Oh, man. They knew them well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they were great characters all together. There was many left with them, indeed. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. for sure, yeah. yeah. They were great, yeah. Good luck, Mark. Okay, take Mark. care Mark. now. Bye-bye. <laughs> Just up here now, this boreen, I used to come um, in the 1950s uh, on the, through the fields um, from school, and uh, I'd be delivering the Far East. And uh, I always had to come into the village of Ranamechan and then the village of Lime Hill. And I would be um, going into each of the houses. And this house here now is Daly's. Uh, and I always loved going into Ina's, uh, Ina Daly's house, because um, uh, she'd give me uh, tea and sweet cake. Mm. And I used to love that. She'd always have lovely cake. And then I'd go on up to Lime Hill and um, I'd uh, go into... Um, Gosh, is it, uh, oh, the old, there was an old woman there, Mrs. Broderick, I think it was, yes. And um, there I'd have more tea and sweet cake. <laughs> and then, and chat, you know, um, all along the way. And then I'd go into Robinson's and Lime Hill. And I really liked going in there because uh, old Mrs. Robinson, Kitty, uh, used to have uh, boiled cake. And funnily enough now, when I went over to visit her yesterday, I got the recipe for the boiled cake. And, uh, oh, that boiled cake was just magnificent. The Great Spirit spoke loudest and gentlest in the bog and the callows. In the bog, a barren place where neither person nor beast could live, the sodden brown turf paid tribute to millions of years of evolution, where layer upon layer of wood and brush had piled up over countless centuries. The bog was also a sacred place, 
where if you listened carefully, the voice of the Great Spirit would whisper gently on the breezes that blew the purple heather. It would come with little gusts in the solemn silence of the day. It would come in the call of the lark nestled in a warm bank and in the winds that spoke of something greater than all humankind. This spirit spoke through the dusk as the sun set over the heather in a blaze of red and orange and purple, fading out into pale pink and lavender and peach. Now you see we're heading up to Jack's old house and uh, this is the little avenue into it and to the left here uh, they used to have an orchard and uh, lots of apple trees and just about here there was a lilac tree it was beautiful oh there we are there's the lilac tree we're standing right underneath it mm, it's white, my white, white lilac tree yes Ah, oh, yes. Smell. Isn't it lovely? Yes, now this is the house that old Jack lived in. And, uh... Now, we've got all sorts of birds in here now. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, the swallows nest in here now. Oh, there we are, look. Yeah. Oh, my goodness me. Look at that. We've got three swallows. My, let's get that. Isn't that something? There's a uh, there's a very famous um, Canadian author, Margaret Lawrence. Uh, one of her uh, title of one of her novels is A Bird in the House, mm. and uh, it was supposed to be bad luck if a bird flew into the house. But anyway, this I think is different. They've actually nested here. Look at this, they're all flying around. Amazing. This is where you learned your stories. Oh, this is where I learn my stories now. Jack would sit in here. Uh, this was before the uh, range window. Of course, I learned the stories out in Welsh's house as well. But in here too. And uh, Jack would sit there by the fire and uh, he'd tell the stories. And he had a sister, Maggie, and uh, Maggie used to have her bed over there in the corner. Um, now the old house is in ruins there. Jack's family had nine of them. And all of them but the three, six of them went off out to America in the, uh, in the 1900s is, is what it was. Now, there was a very sad story um, here about one of Jack's sisters. Do you remember that song, Noreen Bawn? And it's a very sad, sad song. And um, it's about, it's this story of this young woman who emigrates out to America. And um, she comes back um, some years later and they don't recognize her when she arrives in. She has TB. Well, Jack's sister, Rose, Rose O'Malley, um, left here in the 1900s. And I think she became a domestic worker, like many young Irish women of that time, out in Boston and New York and places like that, and San Francisco. And she contracted TB. And just like the story of Noreen Bond, she came home to die. 
and there were stories about her. She came home with finery, just beautiful clothes, um, lovely gowns and hats, I suppose, with ostrich feathers. You know, they used to like that sort of thing in those days. And fancy shoes, leather shoes. And um, indeed, she was very thin when she arrived. And of course, they hardly knew the daughter that had left. And it's a terribly sad story, terribly sad. So when you look at those ruins there now, you also feel the heartbreak that must have uh, embedded itself into those walls. You know, when that young, the day that young woman left, and indeed the day that all six of them left from that house and went abroad, some of them never to return again, except for Rose and in her case, it was to return to die. But you know, I guess immigration is all the same anyway, whether it was the 1820s or the 1990s. It's wrenching, it's hard, and above all, it's sad. I lifted the suitcase and in one moment it was all over for me in Lime Hill. Daddy took the case out to the old car and laid it gently on the floor. Jack went out to the orchard and it was there that I found him to say goodbye. Tears were trickling down his face in and out through the little stubbles of beard. The familiar old hat cocked sideways on his head, all out of shape and the band sweat stained. He was standing under the apple tree. I shook his hand. Goodbye, Jack, I said, holding back the tears. There was a lump in my throat. Musha so long, Sheila, he said, his voice wavering and trailing off at the end. Lammy came out to the gate with a set of rosary beads as a farewell gift. Don't forget to say your prayers, she said, her deep blue eyes filling up with tears. Worry and hardship had left her face wrinkled and her hair grey. My leaving was hard for her and the rosary would ease her mind a little. She had had Father O to bless it too, to give it more power. Daddy sat in the driver's seat and started up the engine, signalling that the final moment was at hand. I couldn't bear the tension and the finality of it all. It would be easier to slip away quietly without saying goodbye, I thought fleetingly. Goodbye now, Sheila, Mammy said. Her voice was wavering too. Goodbye, Mammy, I said, still managing to hold back the tears.